doors are going to be opened and we have the privilege of walking in and hearing, you know, um, the ladies lead us in worship and hearing you guys uh, sing. It's truly a, a blessing to my heart. We're in the book of Isaiah. We've been going through the Bible starting about 10 years ago, and we are now in Isaiah chapter 40. It's one of those sections, one of those chapters in the Bible that's kind of a, a, a cornerstone. It's one of those sections in the scriptures uh, that speaks to the majesty of who God is and who we are uh, in his presence. It's truly a magnificent section in the Bible. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1, it says this, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hands double for all her sins. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And so as we come before you tonight, Lord, I ask that you would prepare our hearts for uh, not only uh, this amazing set of chapters uh, written by this author who wrote this uh, huge, massive uh, prophetic book, uh, but also that we would get a glimpse, a personal glimpse of you tonight, uh, not only in your, your majesty and your glory in your power and your omniscience and, and everything who you are, all your attributes. Uh, just truly awesome, uh, but also to see your intimacy with us, the transcendent, intimate God, uh, the one who is high above all and yet comes to us and actually became uh, one of us to fulfill uh, these prophetic words. And Lord, we ask that you would help us uh, to see uh, afresh and anew uh, you, that, that these wouldn't just be um, black and white words on a page, but they would penetrate our hearts. That we would see the word of God made flesh, the holy, holy, holy one, uh, come to earth incarnate deity. Lord, we love you for who you are and what you've done for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. It's truly a privilege to be able to uh, not only as we've been going through the book of Isaiah, just see the layout. And especially if you, you know, you don't take verses out of Isaiah, you actually read it in context, starting from the very beginning when Isaiah talks about these four kings uh, that he prophesied to. Remember Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and now Hezekiah, the last of the kings that he's prophesying to. Specific people in history, kings in historical time where we can actually chart out the life that Isaiah lived and the ministry that he had during a horrific time period during the nation of Jerusalem and Judah. Uh, remember last week when we were reading chapters 37 through 39, the nation of Assyria had literally surrounded the walls of Jerusalem. And Hezekiah having to, you know, be, hear all these horrific things, not only about himself, but about his God, presents that letter in the very presence of God. And Isaiah comes in and says, I'm going to deliver you tonight. And just one angel comes down and literally destroys 185,000 of the Assyrian Empire, saving that one little teardrop in the midst of the Assyrian Empire at that time. And God comes down and saves his people. You see, if you look at the book of Isaiah, and you count the number of chapters, you go to the end, and it says 66 chapters. And, and there's a perfect division now between chapters 39 and chapter 40. Uh, there, there's a purpose for this because a lot of this mirrors the Bible as a whole. Uh, how many books are in the Bible itself? 66. Uh, divided into two sections, the New Testament, which contains 27 books, the same number of chapters that we're going to see, 40 
to 66, and then also the Old Testament, which contains exactly 39 books, which is exactly the first part of the book of Isaiah. Unfortunately, when critics look at the book of Isaiah, uh, they kind of, you know, take it apart and they criticize it and they say, well, this couldn't all have been written by one man. It's impossible for one person to have written all 66 of these chapters, especially as we're going to see once we get to chapter 45 and chapter 42, where literally accurate predictions are going to come to pass 150 years before they actually are real. And not only that, but also predicting the Messiah himself come to earth. And so as we walk through this, we're going to make sure that we do this in a way that's methodical, but yes, personal. Uh, because the temptation is to just look at it as an, in an academic way. And just like what we did on Sunday with Psalms 119. I mean, you know, 176 verses all speaking to the word of God. And yet every single one in a personal way showing how the word of God is alive and active and literally causes revival to take place in a person's heart uh, that reads it. Same thing in the book of Isaiah. What's the very first word that's going to be repeated there? What's the first word? Comfort. Why is Isaiah writing these chapters? The last 27 chapters in the book of Isaiah, why is he writing it? It's to comfort the people of Israel. Do you need to be comforted tonight? This message is for you. In fact, three times we're going to see this word comfort used. Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says the Lord. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her. They've just been literally going through a siege where, you know, the people on the walls were fearful for their very lives, where the people inside the walls thought that they were going to be overrun. And now Isaiah, after this amazing, you know, uh, victory that happens because of the sovereignty of God in this situation, he speaks comfort to the people. Do you need to be comforted today? Do you need to be reminded that our God is a God of comfort? And by the way, he sends the comforter, which is the most amazing thing. We'll see that later on uh, when we find out about the Holy Spirit. But even in the midst of warfare, even in the midst of problems, even in the midst of trials, does God bring comfort to his people's lives? Yes, he does. In fact, if you skip ahead to the New Testament, and again, this parallels the New Testament almost word for word. In fact, the New Testament takes these exact words from verse 3 and applies it to John the Baptist. In fact, in every single gospel, every single one of the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, Luke chapter 3, John chapter 1, every single one of them quote this verse right here. Verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. That, that you know, Christmas story, you know, the, the whole idea of the Messiah. If you've ever heard Handel's Messiah, you hear this wor these words literally sung word for word in those majestic voices. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, it says, In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, quoting this verse from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3. Over and over again, prophetic words are coming uh, true. Verse 4, every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. You can hear the octaves going up in your mind if you remember those amazing choruses from Handel's Messiah. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it again. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? 
All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because of the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Now, of course, we live in Bakersfield, and if you've ever you know, gone up the 58 freeway or the 99 freeway, most of the year, what does it look like? It's yellow, right? It's very dry until the rains come. And then what happens? You know, all the wildflowers come out. We have the, you know, the beautiful California poppies and all those purple wildflowers and all, all the beautiful things. But how long do they last? Very quickly, right? You know, it's here today, gone tomorrow. You're driving up 58. One day you see them, and then the next day you don't, right? It's the same picture here. Uh, literally, what is it like if you look back on your life, what does it seem like from the day that you were born till now? Boom. And the older you get, the faster it goes by, right? Why is that? Why is that? Because life is like a vapor. But the word of God lasts forever. Not only the written word of God, as we learned on Sunday, but also uh, Jesus Christ, God incarnate, the word of God made flesh. How long does God last? How long has God existed? Eternity past till eternity future. We call that the omnipresence or omniscience or eternality of God himself. Verse Peter, chapter 1, verse 24 and 25, it says, Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is as the flower of the grass, the grass withers and its flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And then Peter adds this phrase. Now this is the word which by the gospel was preached to you. What does the word of God do to a person's life? It transforms it. It revives it. It resuscitates it. It brings it back to life. Verse 9, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength, lift it up, be not afraid, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Who did the Messiah come to? Where was the Messiah born? Where was Jesus Christ born on this earth? Predicted long ago, he wouldn't come to a Gentile nation. Where would he come? To the Israelites in the city of Bethlehem. Predicted long ago that he would be born there. You read the book of Micah and it says specifically in Bethlehem. Out of all the other cities on the world, out of all the nations on the planet, where would the Messiah be born? Oh, little town of Bethlehem, right? And then to understand that as we're reading through these, behold your God who's going to be born in Judea, in Bethlehem, and he will have his ministry there. To the people of Israel, the lost sheep, of Israel. In fact, it continues on, and we see this very clearly in verses 10 and 11. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his work before him. He will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. The picture that Jesus loved to use for his ministry was like a shepherd. And that comparison of, of him being the good shepherd, be, being the one who would shepherd the sheep. And what would that good shepherd do? He would leave the 99 and go and find the one. Isn't that amazing? None of the hired hands would ever do that. 
They they were just in it, and when a you know a, a you know a lion or a bear would come, Jesus would say they would run away. But what was the shepherd, the real shepherd, the one who loved his sheep? What would he do for those sheep? He would lay down his life for the sheep. He would lay down his life for the ones that he loved. Predicted in the book of Isaiah, by the way. Verse 12. I love this picture. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Measured heaven with a span. And calculated the dust of the earth in a measure. Weighed the mountains in a scale and the hills in a balance. You see, in the first part, we see the intimacy of God coming to earth, uh, dwelling amongst people as a man, living amongst those that not only were going to reject him, but also to be that good shepherd to the lost sheep of Israel. But then in the very next section, we see his majesty. Now, picture this, okay? What is a span? Do you guys know what a span is? It's this. It's from the pinky to the thumb. Uh, the open hand. That, that's a, the span, okay? So can you imagine the entire universe itself fitting in the span of the hand of God? Isn't that amazing picture? I mean, that's, by the way, the definition of awesome. The, the majesty of who God is. Just, just the, the span of his hand holding the universe together. And then all the waters on the earth can fit in the little well of his hand. Isn't that, I mean, just the picture itself is absolutely amazing. And then him balancing the mountains, every single one of those mountains designed by God. I had the privilege of living for three months in the nation of Nepal. I loved it. Every single day I could wake up and see the majestic mountains. You know, Mount Everest was kind of in the back, but, but all the rest of those mountains were just absolutely stark. Uh, they literally projected to the very sky itself. And then to imagine that God designed all of those, every single one of those mountains. The, the beauty of living in a, you know, a, a state where mountains literally run up the center of our state. And, and you have to go literally, uh, whether it's on the east side, east side or the west side, you know, each side having a different look. Each side having a different climate. Each side having a different description of the mountains. And to know that God designed all those. Weighed them out perfectly as on scales. Or as it says in verse 13, who has directed the spirit of the Lord. Or as his counselor has taught him. With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? This is one of those things that we get perplexed as human beings about God. Was God ever created? People ask. Was he ever born? Where did he learn all his knowledge? If you know, and th th I love this question. If God is all-powerful, omnipotent, can he make a rock that he couldn't lift? You know, and then, and then, of course, you know, you can, the rhetorical, you know, joke is that, well, if he could, he'd put it on you, you know, that kind of a thing. Uh, but, but you understand uh, the, you know, the, in terms of our human beings, our finite minds trying to understand an infinite God. It goes beyond us. And so this picture of God uh, answers just in a little way, in a little, you know, uh, shell, what it's like to understand the infinite God from the human perspective. Because Isaiah, he's asking these questions. Who taught God? Who instructed God? Who was the one that helped God design everything? Before we were, there was nothing. 
only God. And we understand, you know, believing in what's called the, the Trinity or the triunity, that there was a, a God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all the way back in eternity past. You read John chapter 1, and it describes how Jesus Christ, the Word, existed before everything else was created in eternity past with God by the way. There was still fellowship. There was still love. There was still community even before a single human being was ever created. And it all existed in the Godhead Trinity. It, it all existed in God. He was self-sufficient before anything was ever created, before any angel, before any person, before any animal, before any of these things that we're seeing here, the universe itself. He was self-sufficient already in perfect unity, needing nothing outside of himself. And will always need nothing outside of himself. But then what did God do? He created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And every single thing that he made was good. And what was the last thing that he created there on day six? He created us. He created Adam and Eve, right? He created us, human beings. And what did he do every single evening with those human beings? The infinite, self-sufficient God who didn't need creation, what did he do? He walked with human beings on the earth in the Garden of Eden until they broke the covenant, until they sinned, right? And then death had to enter into the world. But do you understand the same is true for us today? Just like what we read at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 40, God wants to bring comfort in your life. The same infinite, majestic, awesome God wants to have a personal relationship with you and with me. Isn't that amazing? But then going back to all these questions that are asked, and just like Job himself, after experiencing all these trials, you know, at the end of the book of Job and saying, well, I'm going to ask God why he did this to me, right? I'm going to ask God, I'm going to give him a little piece of my mind because I was righteous. I did nothing wrong and I had to deal with all these problems. I had to scrape the boils off of my body. I had to deal with a wife who wanted me just to die. Curse God and die. I had to lose all my kids. I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. And what was the questions that God asked Job? Where were you? Where were you? Same questions that we see here in the book of Isaiah. Did God need instruction on how to make anything? No. He creatively created everything in his own majestic design. All those animals uh, that you're amazed with on the Nature Channel or in school, you know, the platypus and the kangaroo and the hummingbird and all these majestic animals. How did God design and even think up every single one of those? And then he designed every single one of us in this room uniquely. Uh, to know that there's billions and billions of people that God, each every, and every single one of them, are uniquely designed by God. And he wants to have a relationship with every single one of them. He wants to come into their lives. We're going to find out what prevents that, unfortunately. You see, God's attributes are described in great detail. His omnipotence, his omniscience, his omnipresence, as we learned on Sunday, his omnibenevolence, all these omnis that describe terms that we try to grasp in our human capacity, in our human intellect, but we fall so short. Because we can only compare God to something that we see. I can only compare his omnipotence to something that I see as powerful. I, I can only compare his omniscience to something or someone that I see as smart. I, I can only compare his omnibenevolence or his love to someone that I know who loves. But it goes beyond any human experience because God defines every single one of those. 
And it goes beyond anything that was ever created or ever will be in existence. The omnipotence God of God is greater than every single thing in the entire heavens themselves. Every single sun combined, by the way, can fit in the palm or in the span of his hand. Every single mighty ocean can fit in the well of his palm. I mean, that just blows me away. And I hope it does to you as well. Verse 15, it continues on. Behold, the nations are as a drop in a bucket and are counted as small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the isles as very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beast sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing, and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. All these mighty powers that vie for control, the Assyrian Empire and the Babylonian Empire, and then the Greek Empire, the Persian Empire, the Roman Empire, all the empires that have ever existed, what does God say about them? They mean nothing. God directs every single one of them. You see, history is his story, the, the story of God, right? The, the privilege that we understand this, just a little glimpse of this when we worry about it so much. Because our focus, unfortunately, is the news. Our focus is, you know, the, the blurbs that pop up on your feeds, the blogs, and everything that comes in on the political aspect. And, and how am I going to survive this? And, and will I have to do this? Or will I, is this the mark of the beast? Or is the, you know, the Antichrist coming? And we always ask these, you know, these uh, um, horrific questions. But is God still in control now? Is God still in control today? Just like when it was written, he is still in control. So starting with the universe itself, all the suns, all the universes of the world, the galaxy itself fitting within the span of God's hand, and then going down to the nations that fit on a single planet. Does God control every single one of those nations? Yes, he does. There's an amazing story in Daniel chapter 4. Uh, I'm sure you've read this before, but the book of Daniel, of course, is about a guy by the name of Daniel, and he serves three different kings. And one of those kings, in verse or chapter 4, verse 34, it says, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted up my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. You see, Nebuchadnezzar thought he was hot stuff. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was number one. Nebuchadnezzar thought he was the most important person on the planet, just like many people today do. And so he lifted up his eyes and said, I am the best, and God made him like an animal, literally. His hair grew out and his fingernails grew out and he ate grass like a cow until his reasoning tree turned to him, the Bible says. And he says these words in verse 34, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth no one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Have you ever tried to question God? You see, we have lots of questions on this earth. And, and, and you know, I've known people that, you know, write them down and say, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, you know, St. Peter this question. Or I'm going to ask this person that question, right? What are we going to do when we get to heaven? <laughs> We're going to be flat on our face worshiping the Lord, right? All those questions will just fade away. Who cares? Because we will know fully at that time. We, we will see God face to face. We will have the privilege of being with God forever and ever and ever and ever. And all the questions that we have in this world will seem like uh, nothing. 
It continues on in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? The workman molds an image. The goldsmith outspreads it with gold or overspreads it with gold. The silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution uh, chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. You see, you know, throughout history, people have made gods. Uh, creation itself has used creation to make a god. And just like what we see here, if you're rich, you make it out of gold. If you're poor, you make it out of a tree, right? Today, we just, you know, buy it from the store, right? We hold it in our hands. You know, if you're rich, you buy the good models, you know, the ones with the fruit on them. And if you're poor, what do you buy? You, you, it's the same today, right? We, we understand the illustration because we make gods out of the things that are man-made. It's just technology improves throughout the years. Instead of a tree or a gold thing, you know, what do we do instead? The technology speaks to us. We make it alive. It controls ourselves. It tells us even who we are, unfortunately, or we let it tell us who we are. Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretch out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes judges of the earth useless. Who is in control? How much time do you spend in front of those idols that we have? And, and by the way, they are, unfortunately. How much time do we spend in front of those compared to literally understanding God himself? And which one controls our perspective? Because when we allow man-made things, people to control our thoughts rather than the word of God, what happens to our outlook on life? We become bitter. We become angry. We become resentful. We become envious, right? We wonder why these things are happening. But if we understand and look to the word of God, if we come and understand the word of God for who he is, what now happens? Because the theme of this chapter is comfort, right? What does God want to do for you? He wants to comfort you. He wants to show you that he is in control. Verse 24, scarcely shall they be planted, scarcely shall they be sown, scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth. And this, of course, is referring to the princes of the earth, the royalty of the earth. Uh, when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. You see, the shortness of our life compared to the eternality of God is like a vapor. It's like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow. It's the eternality of God and who he is in his personhood, living from eternity past to eternity uh, future. Again, the same question is asked, verse 25, to whom then will you liken me? Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Who can you compare God to? No one. We can't. I can compare myself to another person. I can, you know, get a grade or get a score, and it compares me with other people. You take a test in school, and what does it do? It compares you with a large group. Or you take a test at work and it compares you with a large group. But who is God compared to? No one. This is why the understanding of salvation is so important. 
Because not only is God eternal, not, not only is God omnipotent, not only is God omniscient, but God's all righteous as well, holy, as we learned in Isaiah chapter 7. Holy, 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 the standard of righteousness. And when we compare ourselves, and we don't do it in terms of, you know, normally the length of our life or our, our muscles or our strength or our knowledge, unless you're vain or something like that. But what we do do many, many times is we compare ourselves and our righteousness to others. We, we compare our good works to others. Well, I'm not as bad as that person. And so God's going to let me into heaven. He has to, because I have done these good things. But the understanding is, what is the comparison to? Not to a human being, to God himself. And does anybody ever measure up? As Romans says, no, not one. There is none righteous. No, not one. The only one that was righteous was Jesus Christ himself. And he died for us so that we could know him personally. You see, in verse 26, it, it describes it in this way. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. You see, God is unique. God is unique. He can never be compared to anything else. He can, can't be compared to the length of the universe. He can, can't be compared to the strength of a person or an animal or a you know, machine. He can't be compared to anything. Because God is unique and he defines his attributes in himself. He defines who he is by his own existence. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known, have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak and to those who have no might. He increases strength. This is where the omnipotent, omniscient, almighty, all-present, eternal, wise God, the transcendent one now becomes intimate with human beings. Because what does he do to the weak? What does he do to the humble? What does he do to those that are in need? He comes to us. He seeks us out. He loves us and he gives us his strength. In fact, in verse 30 and 31, and I, you know, these probably you have these on refrigerators or or you maybe even have these memorized or even, you know, uh, have sung these before. It says, even the youth shall faint and be weary and the young men shall utterly fall. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I have three sons, 21, 19, and 17, and they have boundless energy, right? They, they climb, you know, these, you know, amazing rock formations and, you know, go to the, you know, the rock walls and climb them. Even, I mean, even literally, you know, just like this, you know, hanging from these little um, handholds. But, but to understand that my sons, despite the fact that they have amazing physical talents, God's given them spiritual talents as well. And, he's, and by the way, he's given it to every single one of us that's a Christian. 
Every single person who is a Christian gets a gift from the Holy Spirit. It may be the gift of encouragement. It may be the gift of mercy. It may be the gift of service. It may be the gift of teaching. It may be the gift of whatever it is, hospitality, gift-giving. But do you understand that all those gifts are meant for one thing? They're meant to build up. You see, in verse 31, it says, and it always prefaces this. Many times we, we overlook this. We always look at the, you know, I'll run and not grow weary. I'll, I'll run and not faint. You know, we always look to those things. But, but what does it say in the very first phrase? You have to wait on the Lord. There's a preface. There's a condition. You got to wait on the Lord. Is it hard to wait? Oh, man. Uh, pastor always says, don't pray for patience. You might just get it, right? Because how do you get patience? Through the trials, through the problems, through the waiting, as it says here. You see, waiting on God creates humility. Because it means I have to be dependent upon someone. And we don't like being dependent upon someone. It helps smooth out our roughed edges, and it needs to be dealt with. You see, when we don't start out willing to wait, our human response to waiting is often anger or doubt. Uh oh, I waited for 10 minutes. I'm a good boy, right? In our now society, in our microwave society, in our, you know, TikTok society or whatever it is. You know, of course, it used to be, you know, 30-second videos or even minute videos, right? And that's too long. And, and then it goes down to six-second videos. And, and now it's even shorter, right? I don't know what the next generation is in terms of, you know, the, the amount of seconds for a video. But why does that happen? Why do they have to get shorter and shorter and shorter? Because our attention span is shorter and shorter and shorter, right? We, we hate to wait. We, we hate to be reliant. We want it now. You see, waiting not only creates humility, but it also builds anticipation. When you wait for something, what does it do? And unfortunately, in our society, the anticipation becomes so great that when we actually get the product, and you know it, the next phone, the next computer, the next car, the next boat, the next whatever it is, does it ever leave or ever meet the expectations of the anticipation? Unfortunately, most of the time it doesn't, right? It always falls short. And then, of course, the next generation comes out, and then what happens? The buildup happens. The anticipation comes. But when we wait on God, there's an anticipation that will never fail. There's a hope that will always be sure. That there's a faith that will always come to pass. Everything will be fulfilled in God. The third thing that happens when we wait, it stirs up our passion and it stirs up our desire. It stirs up those things within us that we're longing for, that anticipation and the passion behind it, the buildup. And when God lets you loose after blessing you with whatever it is that he's given to you, you then can share that with someone else. The, the wait is for a purpose. The, the wait is for the time that we have with God. But above and beyond all those things, the waiting has an even better purpose. You see, the waiting builds our relationship with God in the quiet times. In the times where there's stillness, where, where there's nothing going on. And then now I can have a relationship with God. I can have intimacy with him. 
You see, when, you know, we're working and when we're doing things and, you know, all the activities are going on, it's hard to, you know, sometimes have that relationship with God, that, that stillness before God. But then when God calls us to wait or there's a time of lull in our lives, do we use it for preparation for the hard times? Do, do we use it for preparation for the times like we saw earlier of the running, uh, of the race, uh, of the, you know, the, the exertion of energy, the using of the gifts? Do we use the time of waiting wisely? Or do we squander it? You see, in Psalm 33, verse 20 and 22, it says this, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. For our heart shall rejoice in him, because we have trusted in his holy name. Let your mercy, O Lord, be upon us, just as we hope in you. Is your expectation on God? Is your anticipation on God? Or is it on something that's going to fail you? And you know it's going to fail you, by the way. You just hope it doesn't. You just hope it doesn't. But anything man-made eventually will fail. The book of Isaiah, as we talked about earlier, was to four different kings. Starting in chapter 41, we come across this section that now is going to be uh, literally happening in about 150 years from the time uh, that this was written. Unfortunately, whether you read a commentary or whether you read maybe a, a critic of the Bible or someone that says, well, this couldn't have been written at this time. It had to have been written later. Because the accuracy of these prophetic words that we're going to see now coming from the description of God now to describe what's going to happen within the next century of the time that Isaiah is predicting these things. And literally these predictions are spot on accurate. And we can understand, you know, Jesus being predicted, the place of his birth. You know, he was going to be born of a virgin. He was going to be the Messiah, God made flesh. He would have to go down to Egypt and he would come out of Egypt. We're going to see that later on. And those are, you know, religious things. But to actually predict historical fact, history, things that you would learn in your history class 150 years before they would happen. Can you imagine that? You see, this is what Isaiah is going to be doing in this next section, chapter 41 here. Keep silence before me, O coastlands, and let the people renew their strength. Let them come near, then let them speak. Let us come near together for judgment. You see, there's this picture of this trial that's happening. Uh, this judgment that's going to come upon the other nations. Verse 2, who raised up one from the east who is right in righteousness called him to his feet, who gave the nations before him and made him rule over kings, who, who gave them as the dust to his sword, as driven stubble to his bow, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet. You see, at this time, the world power was the Assyrian kingdom, okay, the Assyrian empire. But within a couple of decades, the Babylonian empire is going to rise up, and they're going to overtake uh, the Assyrian empire. They're, they're going to become the next world power, and of course, the Babylonians, they're going to come in. They're going to take the people of Jerusalem, the nation of Judah, and they're going to take them into slavery in three different increments. The first time they come in, they're going to take away people like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, uh, Azariah, um, and Misael, and, and all these other people that were handsome and good-looking and, and wise. And they would take them and they would indoctrinate them and put them into you know, positions of power within the Babylonian Empire. And, and of course, Daniel, whom we read about earlier, is going to be one of those guys. And he's going to be a light in a dead nation. But then the Babylonians also came in a second time and they took the craftsmen or the people with skill, uh, people like Ezekiel. And you read about that in the book of Ezekiel. And then, then the third time they come, the time when they come and literally destroy 
the nation of Jerusalem, 586 BC, the only ones that are left are the riffraff, the people like Jeremiah, the, the people who have, you know, no skill, are ugly, and, you know, just are living there. The people that are literally having to eat their own kids because of the devastation that's happening in the land. And during those three time periods, the Babylonian Empire is going to bring about a level of destruction and, you know, to the temple itself, to the altar, to the walls. But then what's going to happen now in the Babylonian Empire? The Persians are going to come. And they're going to be led by a man by the name of Cyrus. And this man we're going to be reading about in this next couple of chapters. In fact, in chapter 41 and chapter 45, we're going to be reading about the Persian Empire. This hasn't even taken place in the time period of Isaiah. And so unfortunately, when people read this, they say this couldn't have been written during the time of this guy by the name of Isaiah. It had to have been written later because of the accuracy, because of the way the descriptions of the Persian Empire under the reign of Cyrus. You see, it was Cyrus that allowed the nation of Judah to return to the land. The Babylonians took them into the land, and it was the Persians or Cyrus, the nation of Persia, who allowed them to come back to the land. And we read about that in the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah asks Cyrus, who, for whom he's the cupbearer too, and he, they allow the people to go back to the land of uh, Judah, the city of uh, Jerusalem. You see, when this uh, Persians would inhabit a land, it would be as if their feet weren't even touching the ground. They were so swift. They, they had uh, chariots and they had all these equipment that they would use for instead of a slow pondering army, their army was swift and it would quickly overtake nation after nation. As it says in verse 3, who pursued them and passed safely by the way that he had not gone with his feet as if they're skipping across the ground. Verse 4, who has performed and done it, calling the generations from the beginning, I the Lord and the first, and with the last I am he. The coastland saw it and feared, and the ends of the earth were afraid. They drew near and they came. Everyone helped his neighbor and said to his brother, be of good courage. So the craftsman encouraged the goldsmith. He who smooths with the hammer inspired him who strikes the anvil, saying, it is ready for the soldering. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he will also blow on them and they shall wither and the whirlwind will take them away like stubble. The destruction will be so swift that they'll try to build things. They'll, they'll try to, you know, uh, call out to their gods. They'll try to build fortifications. They'll try to build walls and it will be so swift. The destruction will come. The Persian empire will overtake everything. Verse 25, to whom then, or excuse me, uh, uh, verse uh, 8, uh, then he has fastened it with pegs that it might not totter. The nations, they believed in their gods, but you, O Israel, are my servant. Jacob, whom I have chosen, the descendants of Abraham, my friend, you whom I have taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions and said to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will hold you with my righteous right hand. You see, it was predicted that the nation of Israel would only be in captivity for a certain length of time, 70 years to be exact. And the Babylonians would take them away and the nation of Persia, King Cyrus would allow them to come back. All these predictions are going to be seen in these next couple of chapters. It's absolutely amazing. 
In fact, in verse 11, behold, all those who were incensed against you shall be ashamed and disgraced. They shall be as nothing, and those who strive with you shall perish. You shall seek them and not find them. Those who contended with you, those who war against you shall be as nothing, as a non-existent thing. For I, the Lord your God, will uphold your right hand, saying to you, fear not, I will help you. Fear not. You worm, Jacob, you man of Israel. I will help you, says the Lord, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Who is in charge of all these mighty empires? The Assyrian Empire, the Babylonian Empire, the Persian Empire. Who is in charge of every single one of them? God. And it's all working in history itself. You shall rejoice, or excuse me, in verse 15. Behold, I will make you into a new threshing sledge with sharp teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them. The wind shall carry them away and the whirlwind shall scatter them. You shall rejoice in the Lord and glory in the Holy One of Israel. The poor and the needy, they seek water, but there is none. Their tongues fail for thirst. I, the Lord, will hear them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open rivers in desolate heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will plant in the wilderness the cedar and the acacia tree, the myrtle and the oil tree. I will set in the desert the cypress tree and the pine and the box tree together that they may see and know and consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this and the Holy One of Israel has created it. And just as we end tonight, and I know that there's all these references to these trees. Now, I want you to look up, just, just for your homework this next week, look up these trees. Because every single one of these trees do not grow in the desert where it's saying these trees are. For example, the myrtle tree. Where, where does the myrtle tree grow? You, you drive up the coast to Oregon, and it only grows in two places on the planet. You know, the, the coast in Oregon, Northern California, and Israel itself. This slow-growing tree that has a, a dense, smooth uh, wood to it. And the privilege of understanding that we're going to have the privilege of being able to see this in the future. When God comes and makes the nation of Israel green again. And yes, there's, there's lots of agriculture in Israel even today. But to understand that the, literally the Dead Sea is going to come to life. Where, where the rivers are going to flow into that valley and the water will rise to the very mountains itself. Or read the end of the book of Ezekiel and you'll see a, a lot of these things. You see, God will cause these trees that need a, a mild climate with consistent watering to thrive in what once was a desert. But not just the trees. The people as well. You see, does God want to have a personal, intimate relationship with every single one of us? Yes, he does. And what is the call? To wait upon the Lord. And what will he do? He will give you strength. Don't rush. Wait for God. And he will do amazing things uh, in your life. And so, Father, tonight, as we, we end it here in the middle of a chapter, I ask that you would create within us a hunger this coming week uh, to, to see what will happen next, uh, even, even before next Wednesday, uh, that, that you wouldn't let us forget these things, but you would remind us and, and help us to actually uh, study these out ourselves, uh, to, to read ahead and, and maybe to, to look and, and to read the amazing you know, pictures that we're going to see in the rest of this chapter and then in chapter 42, uh, how, how you come to this earth, not as someone who is uh, proud, uh, not as someone who is boastful, but someone who is humble, even like a servant. And so, Lord, tonight as we wait upon you,
Maybe uh, we, we understand that there's things in our lives that we don't have all the questions or the answers to, or even the questions about, but that you would help us to seek you, the one uh, who knows all, and the problems in our lives. Help us to seek you, the all-powerful one. The, the problems and sicknesses in our lives, that we would seek you, the eternal one. The problems in our lives, the relationships that are broken, the, the families that may be torn apart, that we would seek you, the intimate one, the one who repairs the brokenhearted and who reaches out to those that are in need. And so, Lord, I pray for each and every single one of us in this room, for those that are uh, watching online, that you would just strengthen us today. And in our time of need, we would never turn to anything else first except for you. And we'd seek you first in our lives. Lord, we thank you that you are always there for us. You are the transcendent, omnipotent, omniscient, omnibenevolent, uh, eternal God who came to this earth for us. We love you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.